My guest today is a director at the Posse Foundation, a nonprofit that identifies, recruits, and trains individuals with leadership potential and awards them with full tuition scholarships. Please welcome Zakia Thomas. Zakia, how's it going? Great. I'm enjoying this holiday season already. <laughs> yes, yes, I am. Well, weather's a lot warmer here, right? <laughs> uh, quite a bit warmer. I'm used to wearing fleece and a hat and all the above, so it's quite an adjustment to be able to wear jeans and a t-shirt yes. during winter. <laughs> yes, 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 it is. <laughs> well, hey, thank you for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and to kind of get involved in what you're doing. Uh, thank you. So let's jump right into this. What do you do? Ah, <laughs> fun of what I do every day. So I am actually the director for a national organization called the Posse Foundation. And the Posse Foundation is an organization that's really committed to three key things. And that's really expanding the pool from which competitive colleges and universities select its candidates and students, and more specifically, diversifying that pool of individuals. The other piece is really kind of working with college and university partners to really create more welcoming environments on campuses, and then also ensuring that the pipeline of future leaders really is reflective of the world in which we live. Okay. And so does that mean that you're working with not only colleges, but also some high school students, or is it strictly college? We work directly with college and university partners, but what we do is actually identify individuals who are in their senior year of high school for full tuition scholarships. And the interesting thing about the Posse Foundation, which was founded in 1989 by a woman named Debbie Beale, is that this year is a really special year for us. We are selecting the 10,000th scholar. Nice. So yeah, this is a huge milestone and it's happening obviously under some unusual conditions, but conditions that are also really driving innovation within the organization as well. Wow. 10,000 scholars. Okay. And full tuition for all these scholars. Full tuition at private liberal arts colleges and universities, as well as some public universities, and all of which are pretty much within kind of the top 75 colleges in the country. Okay. And I remember hearing about Obama donating a portion of his Nobel Prize award to the foundation. And also not only Obama, but Obama and Michelle really getting involved in the foundation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The organization has always been connected to those in leadership at a variety of different industries, and government is no different. So quite a few years ago, as the Obama administration was continuing to really kind of push its focus on education and educational access, Arnie Duncan, who was then leading the educational initiatives under the Obama administration, had really kind of introduced the president and first lady to the Posse Foundation, it was really through that relationship and the relationship with the founder, Debbie Beale, that the foundation came on their radar screen. And really, you know, there have been leaders at every level of government, Colin Powell, David Dinkins, others who have really stepped up and not only supported the organization at the national level, but who have been actively involved in spreading the word and sharing 
what this pipeline actually produces, both nationally and then also internationally. I think one of the interesting things about Posse is that Posse not only produces scholars, the focus is on merit and leadership, but it's also focused on service. So this impetus to not only achieve for oneself, but also for one's community is a driving force in the organization. And it's one of the reasons why a posse is actually made of 10 people. This is not a program that focuses on the individual. It focuses from the very beginning by design on the group, on the community and on community impact. So the idea is that when you have more than one person moving the needle forward, that you actually have a community of individuals who really are dispersed to create change in many different places, many different spaces and across industry. And within that, what we find is that the whole notion of leadership is also elastic. So you know, people tend to think about a high school student who is the captain of the lacrosse team or chess or debate as being a leader. And while that may be the most obvious form of leadership, we have students who demonstrate leadership in unconventional ways. So we have some who are performing well academically, but who are also helping to raise their four to five siblings. And for us, that represents something core about who they are, what kind of character they bring to the table and what kind of leadership that they may provide now and in the future. Okay, great, wow. And sorry, I should have said President Obama and First Lady <laughs> Michelle, acting like I know them. <laughs> but that's great. Okay. And now, can you talk about your responsibilities within the organization? Sure. As the site director, I oversee a team of nine individuals who focus on kind of three particular areas. One is career support. So we have a, a person who really works with companies to ensure that our have career enhancing internships and competitive opportunities for fellowship and graduate study. And because of that particular function, we have quite a few individuals who are Posse scholars who go on to be Fulbright scholars, Gilman scholars. They study abroad, they conduct research in healthcare, um, in public policy, and they do so as undergraduates and then go on to graduate school. I also have colleagues who work on the program itself and really the Posse program is one that is really focused on cultivating leadership, both prior to collegiate matriculation and so during and after. So there are a team of individuals, trainers who visit with the students in a typical year on campus multiple times a year, as well as a program director that oversees the intake of all of the different scholars that we see. And just to kind of give some, some stats. This year alone, the Posse Houston office had more than 1,200 nominations from community-based organizations, school counselors, individuals who were being basically presented as potential Posse scholars. That more than 1,200 individual students gets whittled down to 660 semifinalists, and then another 100 for finalist positions, and ultimately we select 60 scholars out of that 1200. So that process is a really robust one, but it's also one that takes the involvement of many, many volunteers who are working in industry, as well as staff who are making sure that prior to selection, 
that there is a really coordinated and strategic effort to identify really talented young people among a larger pool of them, but also who support them and help guide them through the, through the process of developing some of their leadership skills before starting school in the fall. Okay. Now, so that all makes sense to me, and that's great, finding these students and the scholarships and then training them. But can you talk a little bit about once they are in college, the training and what you do with these students? Absolutely. One of the exciting things about Posse is that by design, there is support both right at the peer level, but also at the administrative and management level of the university. Each campus has identified someone in senior leadership who serves as a liaison to the students. Each student or group of students in a posse, which is 10, are also supported by a mentor. And in their first and second years, they meet with that mentor every single week. So they talk about academics. They talk about the adjustment of going to campus. They do things together socially, but they generally have someone. And the mentor is typically somebody who's a tenured faculty member. So it's somebody who is a seasoned professional, someone who has a great deal of expertise in their own area of study, but who also is really, really committed to working with young people to ensure that they have a successful experience. And that group of individuals or that infrastructure also really is pretty expansive even beyond the individuals who are serving. There are other supports on the campus and partners that work with us as staff to make sure that the students meet regularly. There are campuses where one city has scholars who are first year, second years, third and fourth year students. And then there are some campuses where there are multiple cities. So we share Texas A&M University, for example, with the Atlanta Puffy Office. And so those mentors on the campus work to support students who are in their cities or their assigned cities, as well as ones who are not necessarily in their cities, but who may have similar interests academic interests or, or professional goals. Okay. And you, you mentioned Texas A&M that you share with the Atlanta office. In the Houston office, which schools are you working with or which campuses? Well, we have quite a few campuses. We have six in total, Texas A&M being one of them, and more specifically, Texas A&M STEM partnership. So that's something that's also one of the kind of components of the posse design. There are schools that partner with us that are specifically focused on really expanding the pool of students who pursue professional opportunities in STEM. We also work with quite a few schools that are not Texas-based and more specifically on the East Coast. So our additional partners are the University of Virginia, Bryn Mawr College outside of Philadelphia. And in addition to that, Carleton College Colby College and Wellesley College. And Wellesley is also a STEM partner like Texas A&M. So we are really encouraging all of these young people who are coming from Houston to not only explore the academic opportunities in their own backyard, but also to travel and leave and really gather information, knowledge, understanding, and to build networks in spaces and places that they wouldn't typically do so that they can bring those things back to their hometown or stay in those cities or in and around those cities and facilitate change there. Yeah, okay. And Wellesley, it's a great Burrard school, correct? It is, it okay. is. It, it yep. is an all-women's college, highly competitive, and certainly the alma mater of Hillary Clinton. Oh, okay. <laughs> Nice. All right. Now, can you talk about how you got this opportunity? Yeah, I had an unusual pathway to college excess and 
kind of educational pathways from a professional standpoint. As an undergraduate student, I had spent many years prior focusing on developing my kind of creative self. I uh, studied classical violin for a little, almost 20 years, and it really kind of fought within myself to figure out how to balance my interests both in the artistic space and then also my interest in social justice and certainly felt like they were not necessarily competing interests but had to really figure out how I wanted to in both spaces professionally and I was in the early years encouraged to either teach or encouraged to play professionally with a symphony and I really kind of decided with a great deal of clarity that I didn't want to do either one, but at the time there was no clear pathway for doing what I ultimately did for almost 15 years. And that was work on the management and administration side of cultural institutions. So I spent more than 13 years working for arts organizations and left Houston, went to Boston and, and worked for the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, the Boston Play, and, and then also the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And what was, I think, certainly a driving force in my efforts to kind of work in that space was really not seeing people in management and leadership who looked like me. I'd always throughout my life seen individuals who looked like me who were performing in some capacity, but whenever I looked to the senior most levels of leadership, I did not see someone who looked like me. And so for me, that became the social change that I wanted to see. And I wanted to create connection for people to those kinds of institutions who might not necessarily see themselves in them or leading them for that matter. But what ultimately happened is that over time, what I realized is that I wanted to be able to create more impact at scale. And ultimately decided that the best way for me to do that was to gain some additional knowledge of my own. So I went back to school <laughs> and decided to focus on education policy. And it was there that I found out or realized that what I really cared about was the development of social capital. And a lot of that was based on my own realization that my involvement in cultural life had really given me both confidence, skill, discipline, and also the ability to walk into a room where people did not look like me and to hold my own. And the ability to do that really helped me form partnerships, relationships, and to move into spaces where I could actually facilitate change for others. And ultimately, that's what led me to Posse, the idea that there is an organization that is focused on that professional kind of trajectory or creating and enhancing those pipelines, but also not just through the academic pathway, but also through the development of skills, knowledge, and networks. We all know that you can graduate with a top-notch degree and have perfect grades, but that at the end of the day, that the relationships that you build along the way can sometimes be the key that unlocks the door to additional opportunities, both in the field that you're in or in the field that you want to move into. And so I think that's what excites me every day about doing this work. It is creating the opportunity for young people to pursue professional opportunities in spaces and places they might not necessarily imagine or to build relationships that help get them there. Okay. 
So the educational policy part of it, is that the Kennedy School at Harvard? Is that what you, what, I know you were there. Is that what you're talking about? No, so I, I actually went back and got my master's in education policy from the graduate education at Harvard, and then also worked at the Center for Public Leadership while I was there. Oh, okay. And the wonderful thing about Harvard graduate community is that you can learn whatever you want to learn. <laughs> you can take classes everywhere. You can take classes at the business school. And take classes at the Kennedy School. I took some court classes at the education school and then took entrepreneurial finance at the Kennedy School and took classes on lobbying, but all with the goal of understanding the ecosystem, really understanding what was driving educational entrepreneurship. At the time that I went to Harvard, there were many, many firms that were starting to invest in educational startups at a rate that certainly I had not been aware of. And in addition to doing that, the expectation was that educational startups were actually applying solid business principles. So this idea that education and business were completely separate was something that was going away. And as I began to learn, grow, interface with people who were investing in those startups, I began to see that the educational ecosystem was changing in ways that were really significant and would impact certainly communities that I care about, that many of us care about in some significant ways. And that the change would happen ultimately very quickly and without kind of active engagement and involvement in the space that um, many of our kids would get left behind. Mm-hmm. And just curious, how did you find out about the opportunity? Was it word of mouth? Did you Was it on LinkedIn, Indeed? Uh, how did you find out about the opportunity at Posse? I actually had a mentor who had suggested Posse to me. Debbie Beal, who is the founder, actually received her PhD from Harvard and did her thesis, I believe, or her, her dissertation on this concept. And I had a professor at Harvard and then also a separate mentor who said, A, you need to apply to go to Harvard, and B, you really need to consider posse. And I had written down the kind of job that I wanted to have. So this is key in making this transition because as somebody who had been working in the cultural sector, I had had people say to me, oh, why are you trying to move? Why are you trying to industries now? You've made your mark in this space, the Northeast, and people know you for doing cultural work and things of that nature. Why would you want to change now? But I was well supported in making a professional transition. And I had people who were persistent and who kept telling me, nope, you can make this jump, you can shift. It's not a significantly different kind of space to move into, but they encouraged me to pursue the opportunity and I did. And again, I interface with people in the business space every day. They are our biggest supporters and our biggest champions. And the opportunities that I had and the support that I had from mentors prepared me to not only think about fundraising, which I have to do on a typical day, every day, but to also think about intersections of what we do and the impact on the workforce and industry 10, 15, 20 years from now. Right. Now, can you talk a little bit about that transition coming from the Boston Symphony Orchestra and then going into Posse, com- completely different type of organizations and structures? How was that transition in and were there any surprises for you? I think there were some surprises. The transition was one that required me to be patient 
I think above everything, in part because working in the space where I'd been working, which did require fundraising and did require relationship management, it had its own tenor to it. And there was a particular vocabulary, a different way of working and engaging that was required in that particular space that was very different than that of the educational space. And although I worked at the intersection of education and culture within those organizations as director of education within the symphony and and then also within the, the ballet, and I worked in community relations and engage with people in the the public sphere and public affairs in that role, the expectations within the education space were vastly different. The focus on the population was very much about resourcing and were very different. And so I think what I had to kind of address and or overcome was what success looked like in each space and in each place. I had to prepare myself to talk differently and speak differently about what the measures of success actually were from one place to another. And it took time to find the right match. As I mentioned before, I had many people encourage me to just stay in the arts and culture space and pursue other director positions in that space or to to run organizations in that space because of familiarity and because of the recognition of policy in, in that space. But I knew that in order to make myself a viable candidate in the educational space that I really needed to understand the educational ecosystem in a different way. And understanding policy, understanding practice, understanding what was happening at the national level in terms of education policy was key in terms of my being ready to move into the space where I currently am now. I also had to learn to pay much more attention to industry and jobs understanding what kind of jobs were currently in existence, understanding what was on the horizon. I think one of the things that I got a chance to learn more about was AI (laughs) while at Harvard. And I had many, many people around me who were kind of working in that particular space as entrepreneurs who were talking about what does this mean for education? And as I focus certainly on educational access and equity, What does it mean to not be able to take advantage of those kinds of technological advances as a young person or to participate in the creation of tools and mechanisms in that space that could serve communities that don't typically have those resources? So I have to think about all of those things in a lot of different ways. And that's certainly very different from kind of a direct benefit or direct impact on students who may be in in artistic performance, for example, and and bringing artists into schools or making performances accessible. It made me stronger and it pushed me in ways that helped me grow. And I think ultimately, if you are in education, you can never sit down. You can never become relaxed because education is a dynamic field. And that transition from being in the art space to being in this space, certainly as a primary focus, enabled me to do that. Wow. Uh, that's great. Now, you talk about leading nine employees, the fundraising, thinking about things like AI and, and other things. Can you talk about just what a typical day of yours looks like? Sure. When I get up, I'm an early riser. <laughs> <laughs> I typically will kind of sit down and really develop an agenda for the day in part because at any given point I am communicating not only with my own team locally but also connecting back to the national office which is 
in New York City on Wall Street, where things operate at a fast pace, but also very differently. And so I will typically have a meeting with colleagues there in the morning. I will also have a slightly later conversation with my own staff team. I will typically maybe midday or early early afternoon have conversations with donors. I have great board members who I also talk to, and then we'll typically be focused throughout the day on the strategy for the site. So I am on an average day thinking about kind of short-term, near and long-term goals simultaneously, both in terms of thinking about how to direct my staff on immediate projects. So for example, right now we're getting ready to select all of our posses that will start their first year of school in fall 2021. So late, a lot of what I've been doing is working with my team and looking at a whole range of individuals who've applied, young people from across the city of Houston and looking at their profiles, like who are they? What are they interested in? What gets them excited? And then communicating that along with my staff, university reps in Maine, in Minnesota, in Massachusetts, in Virginia, all over the country. So I am talking to different audiences all day long, but it keeps me on my toes <laughs> and keeps me excited and energized every day. I'm also looking at the balance sheet, <laughs> looking at where we are in terms of both our fundraising goals and how we're spending our dollars to support the students that we serve and identifying opportunities for others to support us in that effort. And so again, I have to spend as much time focusing on the kind of qualitative aspects of the work that I do as I do on the quantitative aspects of the work that I do. But it, it makes for a very interesting and again, dynamic daily it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so based on some of the things that you've said, it seems like leadership skills, communication skills, because you're communicating with your team, the national office, board members, donors, just different audiences, strategic thinking, budgeting. These are some skills that seem like are important for what you do. Just want to get a sense of from you, if you think this is correct, or what skills and characteristics would you say are most important to be successful in your line of business? I think probably more than anything, adaptability. I think the ability to shift gears, to be fluid and to kind of move like water <laughs> throughout the day, I think is probably the most essential one because things are changing all the time. I'm constantly having to change direction based on something new being handed down from, from our home office. But I would also say that the communication piece is significant, both in terms of how I communicate, what I communicate, but also the ability to listen and really understand what people are saying and what they need. I may on a given day talk to a student who is trying to kind of figure out how they're going to get home because of COVID. I may also be in a position where I'm talking to a parent who is wondering about the well-being of their child. At the same time, I'm having conversations with others who are thinking about the sustainability of the work that we do. So I think listening to what people's concerns are or what drives them to support what we do is critical. It's just as important, if not more important than what I am saying and what I'm pushing out to people as part of the focus on communication in this job. All right. Can you talk about what you love about what you do? I love 
strategy work. That is by far the thing that excites me the most. I am future focused always. And while I love thinking about what we're doing in real time, it is how to move us forward that gets me up. And I mean, it wakes me up in the morning and helps me jump out of bed to do the work that I do. The ability to kind of imagine and execute based on a vision, not only for the organization, but also for the individuals who we serve is one of the things that I am most passionate about. And I think optimizing all kinds of opportunities that come our way as an organization, but also uh, that come, that are presented to the kids that we work with is something that excites me as well. All right. Now, what about on the flip side? What challenges are out there for you? Ah, I think the challenge that I face is really helping people understand the urgency of the work that we do both understanding the urgency, but on my side of things, being patient. I joke about the fact that I'm a Houston girl to the core. I grew up here, but then I went off to the East Coast and these are a little bit faster paced. And so returning home has required me to develop the skill of patience (laughs) as I've worked toward moving our site forward and continuing to, to help it to grow. But I think ultimately learning how to get many different stakeholders on the same page is probably one of the biggest challenges because each individual that I talk to, whether it is somebody who is a potential board member or somebody who is an industry who wants to hire our scholars, that kind of engagement requires me to adjust and articulate what we do and how we do it in a different way each time. And so I think that is one of my daily challenges to translate what we're doing for different audiences so that it has meaning for them in the same way it does for the scholars that we do serve. Okay. And when you're engaging with these stakeholders or potential donors, is this mostly over the phone? It has been of late. I think one of the things that COVID has done is change in which we all engage. And so what would have been an in-person meeting, for example, over a coffee has now turned into a Zoom meeting or a Zoom pitch and or a conversation about how to make social responsibility and environmental sustainability something that's meaningful to individuals who want to study about the environment, care about the environment, but who may not necessarily know much about energy. Right. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, I think that has been probably one of the most interesting adjustments as I've had to engage with donors, is that I don't have the benefit of sitting face-to-face with them, which is how you connect. I mean, that it, it's a very organic way of connecting, but really kind of shifting and making sure that that same feel that you get from sitting face-to-face with someone, talking about the things that they do or their own professional trajectory and what they know and what they do matters to a group of young people who want to pursue a college degree is significant to what we do. And And I think it's requiring something different of me, but it's requiring something different of all the people who are excited about Posse and who really want to engage, who want to get connected. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully this all turns around pretty soon. Hopefully. Absolutely. Fingers crossed. Um, Now, what about hobbies? What hobbies? uh, Just uh, interested. What hobbies do you have? I I know you, you mentioned playing the violin for 15 to 20 years. Are you still playing? I have not been playing. Oh, really? That is actually one of the things that I I want to do 
uh, now that I'm back home, I, I need to start practicing scales. But fortunately for me, I'm, I'm surrounded by family members who, who are musicians. And so my family, I have a mother who's a classical pianist, a cousin who's an opera singer. Uh, we just did a family Zoom call for Thanksgiving. So I think some kind of ensemble performance or something is in my future. But, you know, for fun, I, I do like to read. I also am starting to cook more. I, I did cook before. And I'm, I'm not <laughs> a novice. But pre-COVID, one of the things about Posse is that we, we travel a lot. Um, so I was often on a plane, you know, visiting a campus, visitors, hopping off and on um, on a consistent basis. And so I actually have more time to sit, experiment in the kitchen, try new recipes and, and enjoy that. <laughs> That's great. That's good. All right. And now, do you have any memorable moments in your career that stick out? I do. I do. And I, I mean, there are many but I would say that two of them that stood out to me were, I think, in, in my very first job out of my first graduate program, and that was seeing Bono perform at Symphony Hall during, I think, the Democratic National Convention, and literally leaving my office, going into Symphony Hall and sitting and listening to him perform on stage, nice. doing a dress rehearsal. Um, I mean, it, it, that was kind of surreal. Ted Kennedy was also in the building. And also seeing Broadway stars, Brian Stokes Mitchell and Audra McDowell perform that same night. That was very surreal to see those people up close in the hall. And, and certainly that was one of the reasons why I knew I was in the right place <laughs> at the right time. And then also getting a chance to work with Wyclef on a Haiti fundraiser at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Th those were some exciting high points in my work in the cultural space that I'll remember forever. Again, the fundraiser was focused on Haiti after earthquakes and he came to perform. It was supported by people in New York and Boston. And, and it, was, it was really exciting to be able to kind of bring people together uh, to really kind of celebrate the culture of Haiti and, and to also to celebrate the creative economy. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of what we were talking about was the fact that Haiti has designers, artists, individuals, and that there is this massive kind of untapped opportunity to engage through more significant economic development in that space. And so, again, it, it's one of those places where the social impact piece and the art, artistic and creative piece kind of mesh together beautifully. And I will always remember that and want to, at some point, create that kind of synergy again. Yeah, that would be great. And those, those are cool. Those are great events. That's awesome. <laughs> great moments. So, so Zakia, we're at the end of this interview. I want to head to this quick hitter session where I ask you questions for fun for people to get to know you a little bit better. But before I do that, I just want to see if there's anything additional that you would like to discuss or anything you might have felt that I left off asking you. You know, I, I think if there's anything that I would add, it's that taking risks is so important in a leadership journey. That if at any point throughout my own educational experience, I had listened to some people who had said, oh, you can't do that, or people don't do this, or why would you want to do that, that I would not be where I am today. Mm -hmm. And while I have always had incredible support, both from my family and from friends and mentors around me, I've also had people who have tried to articulate doubt 
in what was possible. And I think the key takeaway is that you really, really have to ignore it all. You have to ignore it all in order to get to places that you're called to go. There will always be people whose vision is smaller um, than what your vision may very well be. And it may take time to get there, but I am absolutely the beneficiary of both a community of individuals who've said, ignore the naysayers and keep moving. So I think that's it. That's great advice. Great advice. I 100% agree with that and glad you said that. (laughs) All right. So let's go to these quick hitter questions. (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) So first question, what's your favorite sports team? Ooh, this is tough. Um, It's a toss up. I'm a Houston girl, so I'm a Houston Texans fan, but I lived in Boston for 20 years, so I still like the Patriots. I know it's a popular answer. (laughs) (laughs) It makes sense though. It makes sense. (laughs) So you saw some championships while you were there. Yes, I did. <laughs> and I'm hoping that the same kind of fantastical excitement awaits me here. Oh, yeah. Bring them over here. That'll be great. <laughs> All right. Favorite movie or show? Oh, oh toss up for two movies. Um, Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris and the documentary on James Baldwin, I'm Not Your Negro. I still need to see that. I'm so embarrassed I haven't seen that yet, but I will. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Favorite musical artist or group? Ah, groups. I'm going a little bit old school. If this qualifies as old school, Min Condition. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah. I'll keep it there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Favorite vacation spot? Ooh, um, Prague. Mm. Prague, Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Uh, great people, historic, but also good music. Lots of jazz there. Really? Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. All right. And favorite food or drink? Uh, food. I like all kinds of American cuisine. Right now I'm thinking about grilled cheese and tomato soup. But I also really like Mediterranean food and really, really like Korean food. Mm-hmm. Korean barbecue. Korean barbecue. Oh, man. In New York, I love the Koreatown, the Korean barbecue there. Was it yeah. 33rd Street? I believe, yeah. I think uh, yeah. Uh, Delicious, fresh, thinly cut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sakia, this has been great. It was great to learn about all that you do and about the Posse Foundation and the impact that you create. And they're very lucky to have someone so passionate about what you do and just uh, forward thinking. So very lucky to have you there to do what you do and all the impact they create. So congrats on all that you have done and keep doing it. And thank you so, so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And I just, I, I want to applaud you for doing what you do and kind of opening up people's minds to all the, all the opportunities that are out there. Thank you. Thank you very much. And is there a website that people can go to to learn more about the Posse Foundation and a way that they can contact you if they have any questions? Absolutely. I can be reached at zakiat at posseefoundation.org. The website is www.posseefoundation.org and you can actually go to the city site. So you can click on Houston and you will find me and find our fantastic team. That is so great. Thanks again. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.